As the time approached for Jesus to make his final journey to Jerusalem, he instructed his disciples and those Pharisees who overheard with parables teaching about the joy over one who is repentant and what it means to remain faithful. After all this, the Lord decides to lay down his life for his friend. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is number 18, Luke 12 through 7 and John 11. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. As always, should you care to send a question to the program, email me at gtgospeltoctrine.com or inbox our page on Facebook. And if you like, share our episode posts or leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Facebook. It helps us to find new listeners. Uh, we do have a question today, but I'm going to answer it. Uh, somebody ha- w- had a little bit of foresight and sent a question about today's lesson, so I'm going to a- answer it uh, when we reach that point in the lesson. But uh, I welcome those questions from you. And so today, let's start with uh, Luke chapters 12 through 17. We've covered part of this already, the parts that deal with Jesus, some of Jesus' parables. Uh, we covered in an earlier lesson. So when we get to Luke chapter 13, we'll skip over that, uh, and you're welcome to go back a couple of weeks, I think it's maybe three weeks, and listen to the part where we where we talk about uh, Luke chapter 13. There is one parable there that I'll mention, because I didn't actually teach about it at the time, and that's the parable of the fig tree. I sort of left it out there for uh, as an exercise to the listener for you to figure out what it meant. And I said that there would come a time when uh, I'd explain what I thought it meant. And so I'm just mentioning it again. I haven't gotten any responses on it, but uh, that's the parable of the fig tree. The time is almost here when when uh, the we will study the scriptures that explain, that make it more clear. Um, okay, so in Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus begins with the parable of the rich fool. And this is a man who he... It has so much prosperity, his crops are, his fields are yielding so many crops that he doesn't have a place to put all of his wealth. And so he's dreaming in bed one night and he's thinking, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull down my barns. I'm going to build even bigger barns and then I'll have a place to put my wealth and I'll be the wealthiest man around. And uh, at the end, God says to him in the parable, God says, thou fool, because this night your, your soul will be required of you. And we don't find out until the very end that this man was not rich towards God. So Jesus says, you know, such will be the case of all those who are rich but are not rich toward God. And this is a recurring theme throughout our lesson today is the idea of how do you you reconcile in your life uh, the riches of the world with the riches of heaven? And so this is somebody who was wealthy. And at the end, we learn he wasn't rich toward God. In other words, he hadn't paid the slightest attention to his spiritual life, livelihood, you might say. And therefore, he was making all of these plans, and his plans came to nothing in an instant. To me, that's the point. So some of these points, some of the, um, some of these parables, it's sort of easy to interpret. Some of them, 
have several different interpretations. If you were to research them, you would find that people people think that it means one thing and somebody else thinks that it means something almost totally opposite. We'll talk a little bit about that. So um, this is the context, and we've studied this scripture as well, but this is the context in which Jesus sends out the 12, and he says, take no thought for raiment. And he tells them, uh, you know, Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of the lilies of the field. So your father, and to me, one of the most notable statements that Jesus makes in this chapter is that your father knows that you have need of these things. So he's saying, look, you need food, you need clothing, you need all of these worldly things. But guess what? God knows that you need those things. And so you're thinking that you have to be concerned with all of it, but God knows that you need it. Now, um, a lot of people have said, well, this was specific uh, counsel given just to these disciples who are about to go out on the road preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so therefore, you know, all of us, we, it doesn't seem very likely that we can all just give up uh, thinking about things of the world, like what we should eat and what we should wear. And I don't have the answer to that, but uh, what he was saying was that we, when we lay up treasures on earth, and and don't pay attention to spiritual things that is a t- that is a very bad terrible idea and that god knows we have need of it and he's going to bless us the more the more priority we put on the things of heaven the more god will bless us with things of the earth because he knows that we can be trusted with it and and trust is a big part of all of these uh, parables that come into play and uh there's, there are a lot of the parables that we're going to talk about, they deal a lot with either a landowner and somebody with servants. So there's a lot of servants and landowners or just a landowner and his children and servants, etc. So what kind of servants are you going to be? One of the parables later on in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 48, he, the, the parable of the watchful servant. So um, he's saying, what kind of servant are you going to be? Are you going to be the kind that is watching they, they were given charge, a bunch of servants were given charge, keep my house clean, keep it in good repair, um, be ready for my return. And then he delays his return. He's, he's gone way beyond the time he said he'd be back. And so the servants think, well, we've got all this food in the larder. We've got uh, all of our master's lands and goods that we could be having a good time with. And who knows when he's coming back, so let's enjoy ourselves. And then if he comes back in the middle of a party where you're wasting his his substance, then you're going to be thrown out on your ear. But if he finds you watching and di- diligent, even though you, you didn't think at all that he would be coming back right then, then he knows that you're diligent all the time. A very clear message and a very, a very important message. So the, to me, this is not a parable. A lot of people have interpreted this parable to be about the second coming of Jesus. To me, yes, it's about that. But it's teaching the general principle that this, and this is an important principle for anything in your life. At the time of accountability, the time for choice has already passed. So we, a lot of times we think, man, I'm really sorry. And if you have any children, I'm sure you've seen this a hundred times. Your kids get really sad when they get caught. And it's because, and they, and they say, oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could change, whatever. But they're sorry that they got caught. And I'm sure we've all felt this way. The, the real remorse comes from having the consequence come upon us, not from having uh, made the original choice in the first place and disappointed God. 
And real change, real repentance is feeling that original pain that came from the choice and not from the consequence. So I'll say it again, at the time of accountability, the time for choice has passed. And and it, it comes across as a little bit harsh because these um, these servants are going to be thrown out and there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, etc. But keep in mind, Jesus is telling these servants, or you know, all, all of us can put ourselves in the place of servants. He's telling all of us this message while we're still in the time for choice. It is not yet the time of accountability. And therefore, to talk about the penalties for making a bad choice is pure love. It's, it's a message of pure charity and care that you really want to help somebody to avoid. I mean, you, if somebody you love is in a car heading towards uh, a blockage in the road, you're, you're not going to keep silent about the blockage in the road because they would think you're, you're harsh. You're going to say as loudly as you need to, watch out for what's coming up. We're heading right for disaster. And that's what Jesus is, is saying over and over again. So a lot of times when people think, well, the Bible is hellfire and damnation. Yes, because we can still avoid the hellfire and damnation. That is the whole point. The, the Bible isn't saying you're definitely headed there. The Bible, and you should feel terrible all the time. The Bible is saying you should act in such a way that you don't have to uh, suffer the consequences of evil acts. I can help you. I can help you get out of this. You're in a bad situation, and it, it's not a bad situation solely because of your choice. It's the nature of the world. You live in a fallen world, and I've redeemed the world. Would you like to escape all of these terrible consequences through my help? Um, my hand is reached out to you, and that's the message of the gospel. So when you hear when you hear this this parable and you think that's a little harsh, remember, he's giving it to us at a time when we can still make a change. So it's a teaching of pure love. And and Jesus gives that same message again with a weather metaphor. You know, you can you can see the, si- the signs of the weather in the sky, but you can't see the signs of the times. Um, and also a, another metaphor of a lawsuit, right? You can, you can, if, if you get caught in a lawsuit with somebody, then you're not coming out of there until you've paid the utter, uttermost far, farthing. So please don't get involved in this lawsuit unless you know that you can win. And what, he, what he's saying is, while you're still in the time to make these small changes that can have a big effect later on, why not do it? Um, okay, so skipping, that's chapter 12. I'm, I'm actually... Um, well, let me back up a little bit. So the the Gospels in the New Testament, of all the scriptures that we study, you know, they say feast on the scriptures. This is one of, studying the Gospels, we have the, these few months, in, in all the four years, we have these few months to eat this delicious meal. It's like the best meal of all of the, of all the menu. But when I get a chance to study, you may have noticed that when I get a chance to talk about the gospel according to John, to me, that's like dessert. And so we have a John chapter coming up. And so um, I'm, I'm loving talking about the Luke chapters, but I really can't wait to get to John chapter 11. So we're skipping over uh, Luke chapter 13. Now, um, many times in the gospels, here we are in, in Luke 14, 
And one of the first episodes here is Jesus heals a man with what's called dropsy on the Sabbath. And um, this is following another similar episode in 13 that we skipped over. So Jesus is constantly healing people on the Sabbath and then confronting those who recriminate against him with the hypocrisy of their viewpoint. They're saying, oh, this man should not do work on the Sabbath. And he says, look, all of you have animals. Have you not fed your animals and taken care of them? How much how much more sense does it make to take care of a person to do that they could be freed from their bonds? If you have an, if you have an ox that falls in the pit, you're not going to pull it out because it's, it's Saturday. You know, it's the Sabbath. Come on, you all have done this. And you're just... What you're trying to do is confine God into such a small space that you have room to comprehend him. And that that makes it easier for you to live your life because you don't have to make any difficult choices. What you, you know every aspect of every choice that you should do every day. And you have somebody to prescribe all of that for you. And you don't have to show any courage because of it. And what he's saying is you, you, can't, you can't draw a circle around God that easily. You have to uh, leave room that you can sacrifice and that you can change and that you can uh, try to weigh two good options and make a choice between them. That's part of uh, the, the trap that the Pharisees had fallen into, among, among uh, the larger trap of pride, obviously. And pride is what he addresses when Jesus addresses when he talks about the parable of the wedding feast. And so... Uh, this actually, this this parable doesn't have a clear beginning and end because it sort of has two parts. The first part is, if you're invited to a wedding, don't don't choose the best seat for yourself. So, so in the time of Jesus, the a wedding feast. If you were invited and you were you were seated according to your status uh, in relation to the host or in in relation to the groom, and so therefore being seated the, at the head table or close to the groom was an indication that you of your importance. And what Jesus is saying is, um, all of you seem to want to place yourselves, figuratively speaking, um, in, a, in a position of importance rather than being placed there. But if you approach such a situation with humility and you place yourself lower than you think you deserve, then it's, it's actually quite pleasing to be, set, to be told, hey, you, you've placed yourself too low. Come up here and sit with me at the head table. But if you place yourself higher than what you deserve, then it's very humiliating to be told, hey, you've, you've presumed too much. You have to lower yourself. Now, this is more than just uh, an admonition to humility. Um, this is Jesus talking. Now he's talking specifically to the Pharisees. So uh, he's teaching his disciples about the importance of, of worldly wealth versus heavenly wealth. And quite often he's being overheard or he's teaching to a dual audience, his disciples and to the Pharisees who are listening in. And so he's giving his disciples one message while giving the Pharisees a parallel message buried in the first. And the, the admonition to humility on the one hand is very well taken. And then it's also... The, the Pharisees are the people who seat themselves near near the head. They're, th- they're saying, we're the closest to God. And what Jesus is saying is, you may think that, but the way you're acting actually removes you from God. So to give a little context, what's happening in these chapters of Luke, if you, if you uh, search, and 
at some point I'll, I'll find my uh, notes. It talks about what verse that this is discussed, but um, Jesus is journeying towards, uh, it's Luke uh, 13, 22. So uh, Jesus is journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem. And, and these chapters take place basically in a big, long road trip as his disciples follow him on foot. And he goes from town to town teaching and gaining followers and uh, bringing new lessons into play as he goes. And so it may be the same group of Pharisees that he's talking to, but I doubt the Pharisees are following him. Maybe they're sending messages to each other, or maybe they are following him because they're so worried about him. In any case, uh, so in this, in this lesson, he's, he's talking on the one hand about pride and humility, and on the other hand, he's saying Israel, um, or, or to, to be more accurate, Jewry, um, the Pharisees themselves, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious leaders of our time, they've placed themselves too high at this table. And the time will come when God is going to ask them to take a lower seat. And while Jesus is saying this, teaching these kind of lessons, he's having dinner every night. He's being invited into the homes of publicans and sinners. And they're people who are absolutely outcasts. They're disgusting from the from the point of view of the Pharisees. The, the, it's the kind of people the Pharisees would never dream of having over to dinner. And the first example of this was earlier in Luke chapter 7. We discussed it when um, Luke was invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee, and I can't remember if that was in Capernaum or in another city near there, but northern Galilee. And Jesus is there, uh, and, a, and a woman comes in, and it's obvious that this woman is a sinner, and we assume that she's some sort of um, that that's some sort of sexual transgression that she's been involved in because everybody knows that she's a sinner. And so this is the same kind of people that Jesus is interacting with and commonly meeting with. And he's opening his heart to these people. He's obviously, he obviously cares about them to a great extent. To, and he, he loves them because he's willing to spend more time with them than he is with the Pharisees. And, um, and so there is a lot of, uh, interaction and a lot of eating. Uh, one of the questions we had this week, this comes from Janelle in West Jordan, and she asks, in Jewish culture, is there any significance to eating with people? What I heard was that when you eat with someone in Jewish culture, it is akin to making them family. Now, um, I, I think this might have been true at some times. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but what I do know is that when you uh, in, in Near Eastern cultures, when you invited someone to eat with you, what you were saying was, we, were at pe- we are at peace. It was a declaration of peace, and it was powerful. Um, and this, this wasn't just uh, Israel. This was all over. This was Arab lands as well, anywhere in the desert. Uh, if you read the Arabian Nights, you'll notice that uh, quite often, two people who just met will will sit down together and eat, and they will say, let's establish the bond of bread and salt. And that meant that because we've eaten together, now we can no longer take up hostilities against each other. Or the person who, the first person to take up hostilities against each other is guilty of a great wrong, and the other person then is obviously okay to defend themselves. And so for God, um, if you if you remember from our discussion of Noah, the sign of the rainbow was a, a bow is a weapon, and the curved side is the dangerous side. The, the arrows come out of that side. And so a, a declaration of peace 
from that time is if you turn the bow towards yourself and hand it to someone else. And so the, the sign of the bow in the cloud is the sign of a bow extending to the earth but pointing towards heaven. In other words, God is saying, I'm, I am releasing my weapons of war. There is peace between us. And Jesus eating with these people, enjoying these meals together with them, and then talking to them about uh, his parables, about the wedding feasts. These are signs of peace between him and these sinners, as are the other parables that are following. And so what does it mean for God to have be at, be at a state of peace with us? It means that he's willing to forg- forgive our sins. He recognizes that our choices, as bad as they are, are something that we are willing to put behind us, and therefore he's opening his arms to us, and we'll see exactly what that means as we discuss the parable of the prodigal son. Um, but he continues with this parable of the wedding feast, and so the it takes a different form. Now the wedding feast is a real event, and the the um, it's a specific event, and the bridegroom has invited a bunch of people, and they're all his friends. They're all wealthy people. They're all people of the same social status as he is. And when the time comes for the feast, he sends out a servant to, to go say, to remind everyone, okay, now's the time. And they all have an excuse. And so, or it's, it's drawing near. He has a little bit of time to gather people and nobody's coming. And this hurts. I mean, he's prepared this valuable feast and he's got a, an event that he wants people to celebrate with him and no one's going to come. So he says to his servants, well, go out and get people who are traveling on the roadside. And, and they say, yes, we've, okay, we've, we've done that, Lord, and uh, there's still room. And he says, go get everybody. I don't care if you see them hanging out on the street corner. Um, anybody who's standing around who's willing to come into the feast, every one of those people is invited. And nobody that refused my invitation is going to, is going to be allowed in. And then the doors close. And so he, he and before before this parable began, he says, you know, you're going to be sad when you when you want to come into the feast and you say, oh, I, you know, you're eating there in there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and I want to come in, and God is going to say, I don't know you, you're not the person who responded to my invitation. I had an event and you weren't willing to come. Now, if th- this has a an obvious application, an obvious interpretation to the kingdom of heaven. God is inviting us all into the kingdom of heaven to sit down and eat with him. And um, so it is up to us to, to interpret what it means to have a time limit to this, right? Is it the time limit of our death, or does it mean that um, we each get a certain amount of time to repent of each sin, and then um, you know our opportunity has passed? I think it's a little bit of both. We, we have opportunities to repent all the time, and then it, get, it, it might get harder if you miss that opportunity. But really, uh, we're being called upon, this is Jesus calling upon all of us to humble ourselves and be willing to turn from those attitudes that would keep us outside of whatever the wedding feast is. And the wedding feast could be a, a state of spiritual blessedness after this life, or it could be a closer communion with God during this life. Uh, I think both interpretations are borne out by the text. And there's, there's really no reason to draw a difference between them. Because as Jesus has, says many times in these chapters, the kingdom of heaven is right here. It's at hand. It's within you. And so heaven is here on the earth 
In addition to being someplace you go when you die, you can be part of the kingdom as soon as you decide to be. And that's why he's inviting everyone. That's why he sent the disciples out. Their message was, tell everyone the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning the kingdom of heaven is nearby. It is nearby you. It is right with you right now as soon as you choose to be part of it. And so if we wait past this time limit, whatever that is, then the doors will be shut. And Jesus, out of his infinite love, wants us to make that decision to enter in before those doors are shut. It's up to each of us to be wise and interpret what that time limit means. It has a different meaning, I, su- I suspect, for each of us. So that's the, that's the parable of the wedding feast. Um, and Jesus says, uh, I mean, the, this interpretation is, is made more clear when he says, don't invite your friends or your rich neighbors to your wedding feast because they, then they can invite you again. But how much more blessed will you be when you invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind? In other words, uh, I'm, I'm, I can't invite those who think that they deserve it because if they think they deserve it, they probably don't. Um, and I refer you again, I've done this before, but I refer you again to um, a talk by President Uchtdorf, then President Uchtdorf, from April of 2015 conference called The Gift of Grace, and he discusses this dinner between Simon the Pharisee and Jesus where this sinner woman comes in and, and she bathes the Savior's feet with her tears. And Jesus asks Simon a question. He says, uh, who loves more? The man, he gives a little parable about um, uh, two servants who were forgiven. And he says, who loves the master more? And Simon says, the one who was forgiven more. But then Jesus changes it. He doesn't say, she loves me more because I forgave her more. She says, this woman is forgiven because she loved much. But because, but to those to whom to loveth little, the same is forgiven. Or to those whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And so the parable was about how much you'll love after you're forgiven. And then Jesus says, her sins are forgiven because she loved much. So she loves first. He changes the order. And that's significant because it's what's happening here as well. Jesus says he'd invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Now, this is where he spent his time in his mortal ministry was among uh, people who had these physical maladies. But remember, the parable is a metaphor, and he's speaking of those who are outcasts. He's speaking of those who would not normally be invited to any kind of a feast, namely the sinners, the people who are outcasts of Judaism, the Samaritans the publicans, anyone who had any sort of dealings with the Romans, and then people who were ritually unclean or had uh, been thrust out of the synagogue. Anyone who was poor in spirit, as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, those, those beatitudes, all of, almost all of the beatitudes are some form of being outcast or um, not feeling acceptable. And that, that, st- that state that they found, found themselves in, because it was a state of weakness, it was a state of humility, and therefore they were uh, able to receive the Lord's, or hear the Lord's voice when he called unto them. Whereas those people who thought that they deserved to be in the feast uh, actually weren't. There's an interesting um, take, that, there's a more specific discussion of that dinner with Simon the Pharisee um, from Luke chapter 7 in Jesus the Christ, and I recommend it to you. It talks a little bit about uh, how 
Simon the Pharisee wasn't actually, even though Jesus is talking about him being forgiven, um, he's using sarcasm. And he's saying, You're, you, you think that you have little to be forgiven. And, and he lets him think that. The way that Jesus speaks allows him to keep his interpretation that he is a righteous man. But really what Jesus is saying is, uh, little is forgiven unto you because you're not willing to change. And this is, this is really the point of every uh, parable in our lesson today. Um, Jesus talk, Now he talks a little bit about prudence and planning. So he ta- in, in continuing in Luke chapter 14, he says, who starts building a tower without knowing if he can finish it? Um, so people who want to follow me, you know, you're building something. Uh, you, you know, if you, if you want to build a watchtower, you're going to first sit down and say, do I have the resources necessary to finish the job? And what you're doing right now is you're building an, inter- an eternal framework for what your soul is going to become. And I would like it if you were to sit down as you began this process and decide if you can finish the job. And, and the context of this was people who said, um, Lord, I want to follow you, but let me do X, Y, and Z first, whatever it was. And he says, you're, you're, making, you're putting priorities above your spiritual good that don't belong there. That, that is the entire lesson in Luke today, is that Jesus is calling our attention to those priorities we're putting above our spiritual good that don't belong there. Now, the this is balanced against an, a parallel message, which is that there are people who feel that they don't belong with Jesus, that they're not worthy to be next to him, that he doesn't care about them. So on the one hand, he says, if you're the salt that has lost its savor, savor, then it's not, even, it's not good for anything. It's not even good for the dunghill, meaning the compost heap. We can't put this salt, we, we can't get any benefit out of the salt, not even in a recycling sense. We just have to cast it out. And that really is the point of salt. The whole point of salt is savor. Uh, and, and so if we're meant to be the salt of the earth, we are meant to bring out the good things in the earth. God created the earth, and then he declared that it was good, and then he put man on the earth in order to bring out that good that he had created in his good world. And so what did man do? What, what is the repeated lesson of the Hebrew scriptures is that man continually falls short in this task. And Jesus is saying, your job is to rise above the origins of fallen man and be the salt of the earth. And if you can't do it, then you're, that is your purpose. And you're, the, the purpose to which God has created you is an utter waste. And so you've been completely wasted. All of his effort in you has been completely wasted. So Jesus is warning us about the kinds of choices that make a waste of our lives and counseling us to avoid doing that. And then he begins in these, these wonderful par- parables. And so uh, the, first the parable of the lost sheep. So, and he's, if you remember last week, we talked about Jesus declaring himself to, himself to be the good shepherd. And uh, I, we don't know, because that was in John and this is in Luke, we don't know the relative timeline. But if, if this was after that, then, uh, which it may well be, then the people would have had this message resonating in their minds that Jesus is the good shepherd. You remember at the time we discussed how that was language reserved 
for the God of Israel. I am your shepherd, as we learned in the 23rd Psalm, as we learned in Ezekiel chapter 34, among other places. When God calls himself, when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, he is saying, not only am I your Messiah, but I am your God, because I will be your good shepherd. Well, now he's saying, if if there's a shepherd who's missing one sheep, even though he's got 99 there in the corral, why wouldn't he leave the 90 and 9? They're all safe, and he's going to go out and search for that one lost sheep, because he loves every sheep. The fact that the sheep is lost doesn't make it less worthwhile as a sheep. All, all that has to happen is it has to be found and brought home. And then it's just as important as all the other sheep. And this is a message to all of these people that he's eating dinner with, that have been cast out by the Jews. He's saying, you're just as valuable as every other sheep. I'm here to search for you. Come back into the corral and join me at my wedding feast, etc. And I think it's interesting that he uses the word until. He doesn't say and see he doesn't say this the shepherd goes out and sees if he can find the sheep. He says the shepherd will search high and low until he find it. He continues the the same line of teaching with the parable of the lost coin. So a woman loses a, she has 10 silver coins. She loses one in her house. She's going to she's going to tear open every cushion. She's going to look on you know I imagine her looking under couch cushions, but I have no idea. Uh, what that would have <laughs> looked like, you know, pulling up all these pillows or looking everywhere in her house until she find it. She's never going to stop. This is a silver coin, and, and it gets more and more valuable, right? How much does a sheep mean to a shepherd? How much does a coin mean? Is a coin less valuable because it's lost? No, as soon as you find that co- coin, you think, I've gained the entire value of this coin. It's not any worse than the other coins that I have. And yet we feel so much worse when we are the lost sheep or the lost coin. And the and this so that's one of the that's one of the themes in these parables is that these are not less valuable things. And um and this is finally brought home. This is this is brought to its culmination in the parable of the prodigal son. So you know this story well. And um chapter twenty seven of Jesus the Christ, I would recommend that entire chapter to you. It deals with almost all of it deals with what we're talking about in our lesson today. Um, and it's a long chapter, but you can skip over the parts that are, if you've read the scriptures, you can skip over the parts that are just quoting the scriptures and it becomes quite a bit shorter. And so this, the, a man has two sons, a, again, a wealthy landowner, and he has two sons who are sort of servants to him or serving him, and they both have an inheritance coming one day, but one son makes the demand that he wants his inheritance early, and his father gives it to him, and as uh, James Talmadge points out, he didn't have to do that. It was out of pure generosity that he did, and the son then uh, proceeds to waste it quickly and, and sinfully in riotous living. And he ends up far away from home when his money runs out and he's lost and alone and he has to go from begging to taking a job, um, the, the absolute most humiliating job that a Jew could take, which is tending the swine, because not only is he dealing with an unclean animal, but he is subservient to that animal. So, and, and, and then he, he's lowered to such a state that he would... It says he would fain have filled his belly, I think, with the, with the husks that the swine would eat. And so he's about to eat pig slop. 
And so not only is he with unclean animals, and, and if you've ever seen the way pigs eat, um, their food mixes with the filth that surrounds them, and they don't care. And so that's the kind of state, that's the level of degradation that this son was lowered to. It just can't get any lower, and that was Jesus's point, that he finally wakes up and he says, wow, I have gotten, that I've gotten so low that I cannot get any lower. There is no one in my father's household that lives this poorly. I know exactly what it takes to be a farmhand on my dad's ranch, let's say. And so I, I can probably go do that. Why wouldn't I live that life instead of this terrible life that I'm living? And so to put that in a spiritual context, um, we've all heard about people hitting rock bottom. And um, I, I've sort of noticed and I've observed, I, I think this is true, that there really is no such thing as rock bottom. In other words, there's, there's no state that we can reach where it really can't, we, that we can't figure out a way to make it even worse. So what rock bottom is, is just a choice. It's, a, it's the time when, when each of us makes a choice. I'm not willing to let things get worse. This is as bad as I'm willing to let things get. I'm suffering so much right now by being separated from my Heavenly Father that I'm willing now to change my direction and stop walking away from Him and start walking toward Him. Now, this son felt so unworthy. He thought, I'm going to go home and be a servant, not a son. But what happens? His dad sees him afar off, runs to him. Instead of, instead of upbraiding him, why did you waste all your inheritance? This was half of my worldly goods, and you, you've blown it all. I could have left it to you. You could have lived on it for the rest of your life, and now it's gone. Instead, he, he embraces him enthusiastically, and rejoicingly, and and he, before he runs out, he bids his servants bring a ring for his finger, bring a robe to put on him, kill the fatted calf, and let's all make merry and have a feast. This is treatment that is reserved not for servants but for sons. And the son doesn't refuse. He 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 isn't going to cheapen his father's love and forgiveness by refusing that treatment, even though he doesn't feel like he's worthy of it. And the point is, the father is not going to treat his son as any less worthwhile because he's been lost. And that is brought home when the second son comes in from the fields. He's been working. And obviously his feelings are hurt. Now, there have been conference talks about how, um, you know, let's not be like this second son. So that is an obvious interpretation of this parable, and it's a very worthwhile one and very beneficial one. And during the time Jesus was teaching it, this second son, again, it's satire. He's talking, this second son are the Pharisees. They are the religious leaders of his day. He's saying to them, you think that these other people aren't worthy of being included with you, but I'm telling you, they are the children of God. And they, they didn't sacrifice their sonship when they committed sins. They're, they're going to be welcomed in, and there's going to be rejoicing over them. And he, he made that clear when, uh, in, the, in the first two parables, he talked about how the, the shepherd finds the sheep, the woman finds the coin, and then, they go, and then they go and get their friends to rejoice with them. 
So this theme of rejoicing runs through all three of these parables. And so Jesus is telling us God is so happy when we make a change. He doesn't, he's not worried about where we've been. He's not worried about where that coin has been or what happened to the sheep. He's just glad to have it home. This is it. So uh, together with all of the messages of peace that Jesus has been sending, it, it's such a reassuring part of the scriptures, him saying to us, I love you so much that it's so important to me that you come back from wherever you've been. I just don't care where that is. Just come back, please. And you'll be a son again. You'll be a daughter again. As soon as you choose to come and be a servant, then you're adopted back into the family. You're, you've never left. And then the message to the Pharisees is, uh, you know, you think that you've never left, right? So it's a little bit of satire now, obviously, there's a, there's a real message for people who did never leave, but um, I, I guess we can pull a parallel from the lost sheep, right? Uh, which of us are the 90 and 9? I don't think anybody feels like there's never a time when they haven't been part of the fold of God. They haven't been that one lost sheep. So Jesus's point is, I mean, we, we see ourselves in the lost sheep. We see ourselves in the lost coin. We don't see ourselves in the 99 sheep. We don't see ourselves in the nine coins that were never lost. And the point is there are no coins that stayed behind. And what Jesus, and, and if you continue that message into the parable of the prodigal son, what he's saying is the that, that faithful son doesn't actually exist. It's only you think you're the son who stayed behind when really we're all the prodigal son. That, that's what I take. This is my personal interpretation from these three parables being put together. Now, the, the difference, the, the first two parables are very parallel, and the third one is a little different because the lost sheep doesn't find his way home. The lost coin doesn't roll back into the purse. They both have to be found. But the lost son, he has to be, he has to pick himself up. And he has to say, I will arise and go to my father. So this is the emphasis of this parable, is Jesus is saying, your agency is paramount. There is nothing more important. There is nothing that will get you back home other than you deciding to start walking. The, your father cannot come and bring you home. He has a farm. He has a ranch to tend to. He has responsibilities. You have to choose. And as soon as you do, then he will rejoice over you and he will call others to rejoice. You will be a son. You will be a daughter. So those are, those are very important. One of the most important parables ever written of Jesus um, is the prodigal son. The parable, continuing on, the parable of the unjust steward. Uh, this one has been misunderstood, and I think James Talmage's take is, co- is the correct one. So this is a steward who has, a, who has a master who owns the, the household, who owns the estate, and the steward is in charge of the business affairs. And the master calls him in and says, you've been mishandling my affairs. I'm going to fire you. You know, give an accounting for everything you've been doing. And he sees the writing on the wall, and so he calls in all the debtors, and he thinks to himself, all right, I'm going to be put out of my place here pretty soon. I should start making friends in a big hurry. And he starts forgiving his master's debts. And he says, um... Uh, you know, you, how much do you owe my master? Oh, you know, a thousand? Okay, let's say, let's say 900. You, how much do you owe? A thousand, eight hundred. Okay, 
So he starts reducing the amounts that everyone owes his master so that they'll have a kind feeling towards him so that when he starts, when he realizes he's got to go look for a job, then he'll be taken care of. And uh, the point... (laughs) The point that Jesus makes, and then the, and then the master looks at what his steward has done and commends him for his for his wisdom, for his prudence, and um, so a lot of people have misunderstood this interpretation. Um, but the way that James Talmage reads it, and the way that I read it, is that Jesus is saying, "Look, people who are even the unrighteous know how to take care of themselves, to look out for their future interests. They're going to work hard to see that they land on their feet." They're going to take their, uh, if, if, if they know that there's a resource that is limited, like the, their master's wealth of this, of this steward, then they're going to make the most use of it while they can so that when everything ends and they, and they find themselves in a new position, that they can carry forward some benefit. And so the, the, the extension of that is you have this worldly wealth, you have worldly goods here on earth, but eventually those are going to be taken away. You're going to find yourself in a new situation, a new position. And if you don't spend that worldly wealth and buy the only sort of benefit that you can take with you, then you're not even being as hardworking as the, the, the children of the mammon of unrighteousness. So Rindra asked the question, who are the children of light? Because what Jesus says in this parable is, that the the sons of the 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 followers of Mammon of un, unrighteousness are are more wise in their generation than the children of light, and so that's that's what Jesus means by this is that the people who are, who claim to be following God, the children of light, and, and John had his interpretation, and uh, I hate I hate to use John's interpretation on something that Luke wrote, but you remember in John chapter one. John said that Jesus gave unto those who believed, he gave them the powers, the power to become the sons of God. And we've talked a few times about the different seeds, the seed of Abraham, the people who thought they were the seed of Abraham, but were the children of this world, and the people who could be born, not, by, not of flesh, but of God. So the people who became children of God through believing in the Son. And so these two seeds as um, with reference back to Isaiah chapter 53, that Jesus would see his seed when he was made, when his soul was made an, a sacrifice for the sins of others. And the seed of Jesus are the people who would believe in him. So that was John's take on what this meant, which is that the children of light are those who believed in Jesus enough to change and follow him. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a child of light, work at least as hard on on setting up, laying up treasures for yourself in your future state as this unjust steward did. I mean, look, look, this guy's wicked and he's willing to see that a, that a change is coming and that he better make preparations because he's, he's not always going to have access to as many resources as he does now. So he's going to make the most of what he has today so that he lands on his feet tomorrow. And Jesus is saying, look, you've got a spiritual judgment coming over you. Why don't you Take advantage of the blessings that you have and secure blessings for yourself in the future. You know, how much better would it, how much better are you than the wicked steward? And yet you're not doing, you're not even using as much prudence as he does to prepare for the future. Jesus continues that same idea. So he's, he's, um, this unjust steward is, um, he's drawing a parallel between the unjust steward 
and the leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees who are listening in. And he continues that in the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus. So the rich man is the man who has everything in, in life, but then when he dies, Lazarus, the beggar who is outside of his gates, um, and he won't even give him a meal, Lazarus is carried up into the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man then is begging, and he's in torment, and he says, well, can, can you send Lazarus to, e- to even drop a drop of water on my tongue because I'm parched? And the angel says, who's separating heaven from hell, says, you know, you had everything in life, and, and Lazarus was poor, and now he's reached his reward, and you have yours. And so the point that Jesus is making to these leaders of uh, the Jews is, as you, as you keep people out of this banquet, out of this feast, as you keep people out of the church, you thrust them out of the synagogue, you tell them that they're separated from God's presence, that they are the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost brother, then you are earning the reward. And, and this interpretation is supported by the idea that this rich man asked the angel, he says, um, you know, I see Abraham there with him, you know, Father Abraham, meaning this rich man considers himself to be a child of Abraham. And this was the objection that the Pharisees kept using with Jesus to say, uh, we are deserving because we're children of Abraham. We're the seed of Abraham. So this would have hit home to them as, as Jesus is describing a man in hell uh, calling out to Father Abraham. In other words, he's of the seed of Abraham, and yet he's been separated after the judgment. He's been separated from God. So it's really important in Jesus's language, it's really important that we humble ourselves before God and don't consider ourselves to be one of those 90 and nine sheep, one of those nine coins. We don't consider ourselves to be that last brother who stayed home because we never are. We're always the one who was lost and has to be found. We're always the one who has to arise and go to our father. Uh, We finish our... um, time in Luke by talking about the cleansing of the 10 lepers. And this is just a quick lesson. Jesus cleanses 10 lepers, and the one who comes back is a Samaritan. This is foreshadowing. Um, If you remember, we talked about the final few chapters of, when when we talked about the final few chapters of Isaiah, we talked about the fact that originally the the nation of Israel is going to be called back from exile and restored to its former glory. But then in the final day, that strangers, eunuchs, all nations of the world would come unto Israel and God would choose from among them to have priests and Levites. So eventually there will come a time when all nations are invited to the feast, when the feast is opened up to everyone. And this is, um, there's a parallel to that. So this is a well-known trope, you might say. This is a well-known prophecy about how the last days would go. And so when you see this sort of shift in the way that the New Testament is, when the priority that Jesus is giving the people to whom he teaches, then you can know that Jesus is beginning to fulfill this prophecy and other people would have been sensitive to that as well. And I say that because Jesus cleanses 10 lepers. They're, they're far off and he tells them, go show yourselves to the priest. They ask him to heal them. And he says, go show yourselves to the priest, you'll be healed. And as they were walking, they were healed. And one who comes back, he's a Samaritan, one of these outcasts from, from Judea. And Jesus says, well, well, here's your one man, but where are the nine? 
and go, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. So he comes back and he praises God. And the others, they were healed too, but they didn't come back and praise God. The one who was willing to praise God and thank God and be grateful and recognize the great things that God had done for him was a Samaritan. That's, to me, the important part. Um, obviously, this is a parable about, or not a parable, but a, a story um, about an account about gratitude. But it's also one about Jesus being willing to open up the kingdom of God. He's starting to open it up beyond just the children of Israel. He's starting to include what, what they called foreigners or strangers. Everyone is going to be invited to the feast. Well, now we begin talking about John chapter 11. This is the story um, about this is the story that has to do with um, John raising Lazarus, or I'm sorry, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you remember when we talked about John chapter one, uh, I think it would be very beneficial, uh, as a side note, it, to um, to reread John chapter one um, before reading John chapter eleven this week, because uh, if you remember, we talked about how. In John, there are so many ideas that are introduced that are later on given their fulfillment later in John. And in John chapter 11, so many of these come back into play. Um, And as Jesus said, or as John said, that every story that he gives is, has a purpose. And the purpose is that we would be convinced that we should believe in Jesus and know that he is our savior. And one of the messages, for example, um, Jesus begins his ministry uh, in John. He begins it in a place that John calls Bethany beyond Jordan. And then now, um, just to give you a little bit of chronology, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, this is within a month of his crucifixion. And therefore, uh, as he begins the beginning of his ministry, uh, John is drawing a clear parallel between when Jesus begins his ministry and when he begins the end of his ministry. So um, Bethany is where Lazarus lives. There's a Bethany just right outside of Jerusalem, and he's drawing a parallel between where Jesus was baptized and where he raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, also in John 1:14, John says, "We beheld his glory." And this this is a chapter that deals with the glory of Jesus. So, Um, Those are just two small examples of symbols of motifs that are introduced in John chapter 1 that are finding at least a partial fulfillment now. Um, In verse 2 of John chapter 11, um, uh, John talks about the Mary who anointed the Lord with oil. Now this is proof that John intends for us to read this gospel over and over again because if you're paying attention, you recognize John hasn't yet actually talked about this Mary who this 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 uh, episode in which Mary anoints Jesus with oil. Uh, this hasn't happened yet. That happens in the next chapter in John twelve three. So uh, John's saying, <laughs> you know, I'm, I I expect that you've already read through the the Gospel of John several times, and so when I say this is the Mary who anointed the Lord with oil. You're remembering not from your reading. You're not meant to read read through this once and get it all the first time. You're remembering that she anointed the Lord with oil from the previous time you read this or from reading it in another one of the Gospels that I know you have because John wrote his last. 
Um, so John is told that, um, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I keep mixing Jesus and John. Jesus is told that, that Lazarus is sick unto death, and he says, uh, this sickness is not unto death, which is, um, he's prophesying his own raising of Lazarus from the dead. He's not saying that Lazarus is not going to die, but that Lazarus is not going to stay dead. But everyone is pacified by this. He waits. He waits. And so this is such an interesting lesson for us that Jesus waits um, when he finds out Lazarus is sick. If you remember last week, we talked about the blind man, and Jesus asked his disciples, um, or his disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, no, it's that the works, are, that the power of God may be made manifest in him. And I talked about at the time that how empty that must have felt to this blind man. You know, is that really a good enough reason for me to have to be blind my whole life so that you could show the power of God? And this is something we all have to come to terms with, is that for Jesus to be able to show the power of God is worth every amount of suffering. That It really is a meaning to the suffering that we have, and it's a sufficient meaning. Um, I'm reminded of the book, you may have heard of it, Man's Search for Meaning. And it's written by a, a man named Viktor Frankl, who was a concentration camp, uh, a Nazi concentration camp survivor. And then he became a psychotherapist. And one of his patients had his wife die in the camps. And this man kept coming to him and saying, I just can't believe that my wife had to die. Um, I, I, I don't know how I can keep going. And it hurts so much. And then one day, Dr. Frankel had an idea. He said, well, what would have happened if she hadn't died and you'd died instead? And he said, well, then she'd have to live without me. And he said, so maybe part of the reason that you survived and she died is so that she wouldn't have to go through that. And this man never came back. He'd found a meaning to his suffering. And when he, had, and when he found that meaning, that was enough. He could bear it. And... So the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus makes the same point about Lazarus's suffering and the suffering of those around him. And he says that the, the reason for this is to, show, is to show his power. And it's important for us to remember that if, if we can find that meaning that God will show forth his power in our lives, that is a, that is a meaning sufficient to, or it should be, uh, a meaning sufficient to help us bear any suffering. Now, remember, Jesus loved these three. They were, they were good friends of his. It's probably where he stayed every time he came to Jerusalem, and, which would have been often for all of the feasts that happened there. And he loved them so much, and yet he was willing to let them, uh, instead of getting uh, on, on the road immediately when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he was willing to let them linger in uncertainty and then go through the death of their brother and then uh, and then suffer for four days until he finally showed up. And therefore, Jesus is saying by his actions that it was a good enough reason that he could show his power. Him showing his power was a good enough reason for them to have to go through this suffering because showing that power, showing the power of God was so important. And so when we find evidence of the power of God in our lives, we can be confident that this is something that is giving meaning. It's giving not only meaning, but sufficient meaning to the suffering that we are feeling. Um, 
In verse 25, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, in, in previous chapters, he said, in chapter 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. In, in chapter 7, he said, I'm the living water. Um, and he said, I am the light of the world. So he's, Jesus, now remember, I am is a phrase with special meaning. He's claiming his, his divinity, his godhood, and then he's equating it to some aspect of the salvation that he brings. So he started out symbolically, I am the bread, I am the water, I am the light. All of these things were um, introduced in John chapter 1. And finally, in, in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is words of comfort that he gives to uh, Mary and Martha as they, as they come out and say, where were you? You know, when Lazarus was sick, if you'd only been here, you could have healed him. So Lazarus is dead, and he's dead for four days. And to me, that, that time period is significant because um, four days is the amount of time that you know somebody is dead if they haven't had any water. If there have been all kinds of historical examples of people, they thought they were dead, and they, um, you know, they were dead for a certain amount of period, certain period of time, and then uh, it turns out they were actually alive. But if he's been sealed in the tomb for four days, then any scientist would say, yeah, that guy was dead. If he was sick, he, go, he went in there sick. He hasn't had anything to eat or drink in four days. He is for sure dead. Not only that, but they, they, his corpse has already started to rot and decompose. They've, they've wrapped it in the burial shroud. Um, his body has been treated for death and possibly even embalmed. We don't know. But um, so there's no doubt about Lazarus being dead. And I think that's the point. I think that's why Jesus waited so long, so that um, in, the, in the earlier cases of Jesus raising people from the dead, um, there could have been people who said, well, you know, how, how long, uh, I guess, uh, to, to borrow a, a phrase from, from popular culture, they could have said, well, he was only mostly dead. And uh, he wasn't mostly dead. He was all dead. So there was nothing to do but go through his pockets and look for loose change. But uh, Jesus shows up after three days, and this is right out of uh, Genesis 1 through 3, right? Humans, God tells Adam and Eve that death will come into the world because of their choices, because of the brokenness and the evil of our world. And Jesus is, is when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, remember the, um, the, the chapter where, um, in, in, again in John chapter 1, when John says Jesus dwelt with us, the word he uses is, has the same root as the tabernacle in the wilderness. Uh, the, it would be just as accurate to say that Jesus tabernacled with us, and that was John's way of saying Jesus is the temple. Now remember, the imagery inside the temple was all of this Garden of Eve, Eden um, imagery, so that the, the priest, as he walked from the altar to the Holy of Holies, was reversing the fall. And Jesus, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, this is what he's saying. I'm reversing the process by, with, by which death came upon mankind. And um, so in John, again in John 1, um, John says that Jesus gave power, the word gave power to those who believed to become the sons of God. Remember the children of light that we talked about, not born of man or flesh, but of God. When Lazarus comes forth from the tomb, um, and he's and he's wrapped up in these clothes. To me, 
Uh, first of all, if you know what swaddling clothes are, they're, they're clothes meant to bound, bind a baby's limbs so that he feels confined. And when Lazarus walks forth, he has these burial clothes on. To me, I saw a, sim, uh, a similarity between these burial clothes and swaddling clothes, which would have um, brought, I think, to mind Jesus, the birth of Jesus. In any case, whether that was intentional or not, in any case, they're definitely reminiscent of the burial clothes that Jesus was wrapped in. And these clothes are mentioned two or three times in these verses. And then um, then so are Jesus's burial clothes. And, and it, a big deal is made about how Jesus, what Jesus does with, with his burial shroud, the fact that he folds it up and where he leaves it. And uh, this is the beginning of John trying to tie the death of Jesus to the death of Lazarus. And I'll explain why I think that is in just a few minutes. But um, before Jesus, so Jesus is out uh, near Jericho. He's, he's to the east of Jerusalem. He finds out, he says, he says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. You know, Lazarus is sleeping. I, I go that I may awaken him. And then they don't quite get it. He says, Lazarus is dead. And they're all sad. And then he says, let's go, let's go wake him up. And Thomas actually says um, that there's some discussion at that point what it would mean for Jesus to go in, into the environs of Jerusalem. Basically, it would mean his life. They're seeking to kill you. You're really going to go to Jerusalem? And Thomas says, all right, let's all go. Let's all go and we'll die with him. So Thomas is, is immediately willing to martyr himself with Jesus. So the fact that he's so serious about this means this is a big deal. And this is Jesus, this is John telling us, he's, he's explaining that Jesus is willing at this point to give up his life for his friend, literally to save his friend's life by putting his own life on the line. Before there was, um, before there was ever any understanding among the disciples of what the atonement actually was and what the resurrection was, this is Jesus giving up his life for his friend in a very worldly sense. Um, so, here is Jesus, and one of the most powerful scriptures is the shortest verse in all of scripture. When Jesus arrives at the tomb, and twice um, the sisters of Lazarus come to him, first Martha and then Mary. They come out and they say, Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus weeps with them. And this is uh, an indication. To, so when, when, I, when I read these this verse, I think of Jesus, um, I think of Matthew calling Jesus Emmanuel. That, so when Jesus says, thus was the scripture, or when uh, Matthew says, thus was the scripture fulfilled, that he would be with his people. The name Emmanuel means God with us. And Jesus knew before he ever left Jericho, he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. He said it. And yet he was weeping with Mary and Martha, he was mourning with them. They'd lost their brother. And this is what it means, this is what Emmanuel means, is that as we are suffering, Jesus knows that our sufferings have an end. He knows the glorious end to all of our sufferings. He knows how trivial they are when seen from an eternal perspective. And honestly, Mary and Martha's suffering, had, it, had they known what was about to occur, would have ended instantly. And yet, Jesus was willing, rather than tell them that their suffering was 
trivial and worthless and had no point, he was willing to be in it with them and feel every ounce of what they felt and suffer and cry with them. So he wasn't crying because Lazarus was dead. He knew what the ending of that story was. He was crying because Mary and Martha were sad and suffering, and he was willing to feel that suffering with them. How comforting is that, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's not here to lift us out of our suffering instantly and tell us, here's going to be exactly how all of the difficulties in your life are going to turn out. He's there to experience them with us and walk through pain with us. And um, so then Jesus uh, says, roll back the stone. And again and again, uh, imagery from the resurrection of Jesus is brought into this story. So rolling back the stone is similar to what happens when, uh, the, when Jesus is resurrected. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Um, and then Lazarus walks out. Now, I wanted to draw another parallel. Twice, uh, uh, Mary, Martha comes out and says, Lord, if you'd been here in our suffering, you know, if you hadn't left us alone. And then Mary comes out and says, Lord, if you hadn't left us alone. To me, it's reminiscent or evocative of Jesus saying, my God, my God, twice, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did you leave me alone? So again and again, John is drawing a parallel between the death of Lazarus and the death of Jesus. Um, Now, modern prophets are careful to characterize the raising of Lazarus as a return to his fallen state. They want to make it clear that that it was Jesus who was the first fruits of them that sleep, as had been foretold, right? That Jesus was the first person to be resurrected. Lazarus was only being brought back from the dead and then put back into a, a fallen mortal existence where he would die again. Well, that's an important distinction, but John doesn't care as much about that because his purpose is to show that as Lazarus was brought back from the dead, so Jesus was brought back from the dead. Um, and uh, so I have my own take on the reason behind this, and I think it's this, because Lazarus survived Jesus, and Jesus, after he was resurrected, didn't stick around for the way he had before he died. He didn't continue to teach and walk from and heal from town to town in Galilee and Jerusalem the way he had. Once he died and was resurrected, then his mortal ministry was over, and Lazarus remained And so when John, and I think this is brilliant, when John tied the raising of Lazarus, who many people, I mean, if you lived in Jerusalem at that time, all you had to do was go to talk to somebody. There were probably many people that you could go talk to who had seen the body of Lazarus and then seen Lazarus uh, alive again. And you could go talk to Lazarus. So if you wanted to have some proof that Jesus was risen from the dead, you couldn't see Jesus, but you could see Lazarus. And so for John to tie these two together was to give uh, an extraordinary proof to anybody who doubted or was wondering about Jesus's resurrection to, that they could go and see. And that's another, to, to go and see, that's another um, little seed that John planted in chapter one. It was the way that the disciples brought more disciples. Well, the Jews hear about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. 
Caiaphas makes this terrible pronouncement. He says, um, it's better for one man, and this is actually uh, language that you'll recognize from the Book of Mormon as well. We'll talk about that next year when we discuss First Nephi, but um, he says it's better for one man to die than that an entire nation would, would perish. And he's talking about, of course, the, the fact that um, he expects Jesus to be a military Messiah just like everyone else does. He says, now, he says to himself, now that Jesus has raised this person from the dead, everyone's going to follow him. He's going to raise an army as soon as he wants to. And everyone's going to assume he's the Messiah. And then he's going to march against the Romans. And the Romans will bring, uh, you know, he's, Caiaphas has seen the Roman legions. He knows the might of Rome. The Romans are going to come here and they are going to absolutely crush us. This will be the end of us as a nation. This will be the end of the limited freedoms that we enjoy. We're barely hanging on here. And so we have to kill Jesus in order to save everyone. And what John says is, he didn't know how prophetic his words were. John has been told about this pronouncement of Caiaphas, presumably by either Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. But John says there were many of the leaders of the Jews who believed in Jesus, but they just didn't have the guts to say so because they knew they'd be thrust out of the synagogue. So as soon, and, and so John makes it clear, as soon as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it can't be hidden. You can't hide the fact that somebody's now alive who is dead. Everybody knew he was dead, and Jesus knew this. It was on purpose. So this was Jesus setting in motion, very deliberately, the events that would uh, eventually lead to his persecution, his arrest, his trial, uh, his torment, and his death. And so, as Jesus said, um, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And he did this before Jesus performed the atonement. He, had, he was already laying down his life for his friend. Now, Lazarus, Lazarus, Jesus could have gone back to Bethany early and stopped Lazarus from dying. But Lazarus died so that Jesus could suffer. And then Jesus raised Lazarus to life so that he could die. And then Jesus suffered so that we could be healed. And Jesus died so that we could live. John makes that all clear, and he draws this parallel in such a brilliant way to show us that Jesus is willing to lay down his life for his friends, all of us, that he is willing to always accept us back, not as servants, but as sons and daughters, and that Jesus rejoices over us when we come unto him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We all travel different roads, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, mountain high and valley low, finding where we belong, just remember wherever you go, you don't have to do it alone, when you're
has an ending inside So when it's dark and when it's cold You can come get warm by the fire Cause when you've done everything you can do He'll be there waiting for you When you're lost